Our Father and our God, we just praise your name. We love you so much. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. We have been rescued. We've been saved. The grave has no claim on us. Our sins are forgiven. We are loved in the beloved. You, you care for us. You don't forsake us. You are our provider, our protector, the one who delivers on your promises. You are our amazing God. You are our creator, our redeemer, and the one, O oh God, who is worthy of our praise. And we lift up our praise this morning with great thanksgiving to you. Now, Lord, would you please open up our hearts to your word. You have things you want to say to us this morning, and we want to hear them. So, Father, I pray that you would make us truly grateful for your word, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The one who takes away the sin of the world, of which I am chief sinner and thankful, so thankful that you have saved even me. And I, Lord God, long to proclaim your name in season and out of season, that God's people might be encouraged, that the lost might be saved, and that the hurting might be encouraged. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, evidently, if you've been paying attention to those CPA commercials on TV, have you seen those things? The Canadian Professional Accountants Group, uh, apparently their industry has an image problem that uh, no one wants to become an accountant because it's a boring life. Now, I didn't say that. That's what the advertisers seem to be saying. That's what their own industry seems to be saying. And so they uh, push forth this idea, of course, that uh, CPA is involved in all kinds of exciting things in life. And uh, after watching it, I almost want to change professions, become <laughs> a CPA. It's so exciting. But then I want to tell you about a more exciting profession that I have, and more exciting reality that you experience, and that is to do with the church. You see, a lot of people over the ages have said, church is boring. You ever heard anybody say that, church is boring? Maybe you've been at Calvary your whole life, you've never heard that, because Calvary's not boring, but, but I've been to some boring places. Church is, seems boring sometimes, but that's not the way it really is. Perhaps the, the music is a little tame, maybe the preacher's a little bit, how should we say, less than interesting. But we have a section of scripture that lets us in on a little secret, and that is that when you are gathered with God's people, declaring the truth, Believing that your sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ alone, 
It's not boring. No matter how the packaging is, in fact, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I want you to grab those texts quickly. Just before the, the text in Revelation chapter 3, uh, a very famous verse that we have mostly misused, but you know it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Down through the ages, of course, this has been fashioned as an evangelism verse. You know, go tell people that Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. If you open it up, he'll come in and dine with you and you with him. Well, it's a great verse. It's just not an evangelism verse. In the context here, it's Jesus has been discussing the state of affairs in church in general. Church through the ages, actually. And he makes the point here that your church isn't functioning all that well because I'm kind of standing on the outside knocking. You haven't really invited me in. You're doing church boring because I'm not involved. So he invites them to open the door, and John the Apostle, who writes this, has this grand Lord's Day vision. And in his vision, he hears the Lord invite the church to open up its doors. And John says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. And he answers the question, when you open the door to the Lord... Here's what you get. Revelation 4, Revelation 5. I want to read the text to you, and then I want to make a few comments. I actually just want to read the five songs that are in the text. They're very obvious to you. They look at poetry in the midst of the uh, narratives that are written here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You'll recognize some of these lyrics, I trust. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to pr be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. These are the five songs of Revelation 4 and 5. Now, John is on this great day of the Lord and has this vision of churches. And the context here, of course, is in the Asia Minor setting, uh, the modern-day uh, state of Turkey where at one time was the hotbed of Christianity. Now 80 million plus Muslims, maybe 2,000 tops Christians. 
And Jesus says in the text, to him, verse 21, Revelation 3, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, this is, this is not just a picture of the future. This is a promise of the present reality. As Eugene Peterson writes, when we are in worship, we are in the present rehearsing the end. There is an engagement, a merger, a, an interface, if you will, uh, of the worship of heaven uh, with the worship that is going on in earth. When we gather on a Sunday morning together, there is this glorious reality that there is more than we can see and there is more than we know and there is this amazing reality going on of worship in the grandest form. And the reason I say that this is not just future are two things. One, because when we came to know Christ, the promise for us is we have been raised up together with Christ in the heavenlies. We are, in fact, uh, citizens of two worlds. When we come together in worship, we have one foot in this world and one foot in heaven. We straddle the line of of the glories of heaven. And this Revelation 4, 5 gives us a grand picture of what's really going on. Jesus stands at the door of the church and knocks. What happens when we open the door? After this, John says, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. Do you see the throne? This, this section of a couple of chapters breaks down nicely into true, three sections. Revelation, redemption, and rejoice. And, and then under that, there's these grand visions. Worship always reveals God to the worshiper. So what do you see? Uh, I'm going to invite you to, to jump in here this morning with scriptural imagination to try and grasp with our finite minds descriptions that are given to us here and human, uh, d- human descriptions that, 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 so that our, our minds can somehow grasp the grandeur of the glories of God in worship. Do you see a throne? Overcomers are promised ascent with Jesus on the Father's throne Worship, first of all, recognizes God as the center of everything. You see, it says, and, and one sat there, verse 3, and had the appearance of jasper, a carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders. There's, there's this gathering with God at the center. The throne is at the center. Uh, worship reminds us that God is at the center of everything about us and about the universe and everything there is and every thought that we have. It rightly refocuses our lives. As Eugene Peterson wrote, without worship, we live manipulated, manipulating lives, slaves to every advertisement, seduced by every marginal desire. Non-worshippers lack focus, direction, 
are restless. Look around you. Seeking to find something to put at the center, something that could be the focus, whether it's sports or career or people or a, a larger mall to roam in. Just get me another marketplace. Old Testament high places, Baal worship. In the New Testament, emperor worship. By humans, we're looking for that central focus. But worship recognizes God at the center of everything. This uh, rightly aligns our living uh, week by week as we gather together and, and our, our living is, is brought into alignment. But do you see also one seated? He sat there and had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald around him. Worship recognizes and establishes the true living God as enthroned. Authority, his rule, his authority. Our attention is on him. We either bow to him or we rebel against him. There are only two ways that human nature can go. Only two ways that humans... humans uh, uh, a move, either bowing to the God of the universe or rebelling against him. And this picture of worship and gathering is to bow down to the God who is centered in his throne. We have this grand picture here of colors, of stunning colors, attempting to somehow get our mind wrapped around the glories of God. This Rainbow appearance, this emerald that's like a rainbow around God. Worship, recognizing this splendor of God. Uh, the rainbow, by the way, is God's rainbow that has been hijacked by Satan and his cheap knockoff symbol of the sexual rebellion against people uh, or against the living God. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. Verse 28, in the discussion that Ezekiel had in his vision of God, he writes this, um, God, or like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. Now listen, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. The rainbow hijacked in this cheap knockoff reality by Satan, is to be to the worshiper of the living God a likeness, a reminder of the likeness of the glory of our Lord. We will not surrender that symbol. It is God's symbol. It belongs to Him. It reminds us of our promise that God will never break. It tells us, this, this glorious picture of God tells us of the true colors of light. You know, our, our eyes are, are limited, hu humanly limited. We see light most of the time as white. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. The reality of light is, is as, it's, as it's shone through the prism of a precious stone, uh, shines forth in glorious colors, magnificent colors. The true colors of light are spectacular. And when you're looking at God's presence, you see the, the whole manifestation of the, of, the, uh, of the palette of colors. Dazzling array. 
The churches, the grand churches of ages past had stained glass windows in them on purpose to demonstrate and to remind people of the glories of God. And somehow in this misguided, overcorrected, overly critical Christian existence, we turned the centers of gathering into ho-hum, stripped down of anything that was exciting to look at, and, and, and we just had warehouse rooms to worship the living God. Come on. I, I give kudos to our new technical wonder kids who can shine bright colored lights on the platform and, and light it all up again and remind us of the glories of God. Because that's the interface of heaven and earth. Mike, may your tribe increase. <laughs> Do you see the gathering here? Do you see the gathering? Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. 24. Is that just some sort of random number? How about this? You ever heard of 12 tribes of Israel? You ever heard of 12 apostles? What's the addition of that? Accountants? 24. That's why we have accountants. To keep the math right, 24, the representation of all of the leadership of God's people for all time, the 12 tribes, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, the leaders, the 12 apostles. And by the way, John, who was having this vision, was one of the apostles. I got asked this question in the first service. John was looking at himself. He was beside himself in the presence of God. And so we are. This is an amazing interface of reality. We, we are in the now, but in the not yet. That's what this is all about, this grand worship experience with God, well beyond our pay grade and our ability to fully comprehend. But there it is, 24 elders, the, the leadership of all of God's people gathering. By the way, you have here this, this description as well uh, of these living creatures. Verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a, a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Uh, everything that God had breathed life into was represented here by, these, by the lion and by the ox and by the eagle and by mankind. So that all of creation, the leadership of all of God's people, and everything that God had breathed life Life into is gathered around the throne of God and worshiping Him day and night, all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voices and with us sing. That's what's going on. If we do not praise the Lord, the rocks will cry out. This glorious picture gathering around the center is the appropriate response to God's glory and recognition that all creation worships. Amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That never stops being stated in heaven. And in the hearts of God's people as we live our lives daily in worship. 
But we come together especially in these worship gatherings because we are called to by our God. This is a holy ceremony, a solemn ceremony, gathered together. There are no independent rogues in view here. I get frustrated when I hear people, oh, I can't find a place to worship, but I just do it myself because there's no church that's good enough for me. Every church that proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ is good enough for you. Every church. Because that's where God's interface in heaven and the glories of worship, heavenly worship, come together. And there's this crystal sea. Do you see it here, verse 6? Also there, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In order to approach the throne, you had to, first of all, cross over this crystal sea. What's that all about? Well, in Solomon's temple, you had the bronze sea of cleansing, representing symbolically the need to cleanse yourself before you approached the holiness of God. Here in our setting, the crystal sea is the baptistry, which represents symbolically a heart changed, transformed, uh, uh, a heart redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, symbolized in the, uh, the, the symbolic cleansing of our lives in the baptismal tank because that redemption, that redeemed heart is required before you can approach the living God. All of these are worship elements in our own services. Do you see a scroll, chapter 5, verse 1 to 4? Uh, then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, uh, in God's right hand, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. By the way, scrolls were never written on both sides. This is a unique scroll. It's like nothing else. It represents the scriptures, the holy scriptures of God. And there are no spaces left. It's written on the front and on the back because the revelation of God is complete. He has a lot to say, and it is settled, and he has said all that he will say. And the scroll is held in his hand. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I, John, wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. True worship centers and gathers around the word of God, sealed more often than not in those churches that do not proclaim the truth. The word of God is increasingly sealed and is increasingly sealed to our world. And John weeps bitterly, and we weep bitterly as we look around and as we hear of church after church closing down, turning into a gas station or something like that. We hear of all of these things happening, and we weep. We weep about those who have not paid attention to the Word of God. True worship pays attention to the Word of God. It results in revelation. But rather, in, the, in, in too many places, there are arguments over the Word of God. There's unbelief about the Word of God. It's discussed, but it's not believed. It's copied, but it's not obeyed. It's read, but it's ignored. Places preach ourselves and our spin and our way. 
when we are called to preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus lectured to the Pharisees in his day, the legalists, the progressives, the liberals, the whitewashed sepulchers, reminding them that they were not able to see because they would not see. John chapter 12, verse 37 and verse 39. And so John here weeps. The true worship results in revelation. When we preach Christ, he unseals the revelation of God because here's what one of the elders says, who, by the way, would have been a friend of John's because they hung out with Jesus together. Do you not, do not weep, he says. John, stop crying. Stop crying. I've got good news. I want you to look over there. See the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Make no mistake about it. Unless Jesus opens the word of God to you, you are not going to see and believe. And any religion that ignores or bypasses the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, will not know God. And John says, I don't, I see a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Do you see the lion, John says? Do you see the lamb standing at the center? As John Piper puts it, the lion-like lamb or the lamb-like lion is central to worship in heaven. We do not preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and when we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, he opens up, this, unseals the scroll, opens up our hearts and our minds that we might see and believe God's plan for the ages. This glorious picture, by the way, is not glorious and does not cause celebration unless you and me are in this picture. Now, that's the statement that is made here. Do you see the lion? Do you see the lamb? Do you see the gathering around him? It's glorious, isn't it? It's only glorious if you and I are in it. Are you in there? Every Sunday, we remind each other to get in on this. Get in on this. We're going to come to the table of the Lord soon and remind each other, get in on this. Get in on what Jesus has done. Assure each other that this is what really matters. Our gathering at the center weekly. The scroll is open here. Jesus has opened it. The preaching of God's word is critical to worship. It invites us to the gathering. It shows us the way by showing us Jesus. So stop weeping, beloved. See the lion? He has conquered sin and death. See the lamb, he has substituted himself for you so that you might have salvation. He's the one who was slain so that you might live. What a glorious picture. Unless we are invited to the Lord's table. Because Jesus is our Lord, our lives, and our lives are open doors. He comes and eats with us. That's the promise here. But, beloved, do you see the prayers? Do you see verse 8? And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each one at a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you see our prayers? 
God commissions the saints' prayers to be held in the most exquisite container. What a glorious vision this is. There's something so pastoral here. There's something so parental here. For, for each of us who, who know what it is to, to be handed a love note from your child that can barely scrawl out the, the letters, I love you, Daddy. Or a piece of art. Our God collects our love notes to Him, our prayers to Him in golden bowls because He loves us. And there's rejoicing. Do you hear the singing here? What glorious singing. What, what glorious singing and music we have here at Calvary. Five, five songs in this text being sung in heaven. This, uh, I love to come together and sing with God's people here. And I told the first group, I put my voice at risk every Sunday, singing at the top of my lungs, knowing I should save myself for the sermon that is to come. I don't want to save myself. I can't help but when I'm gathered with God's people and they're singing and praising God. And when I was up here, I was, I was weeping myself as I saw the expressions on your faces of the glory of Jesus Christ and how much he means to you and how much you love him. And how much more does our Savior who gazes on us, who gave his life for us, love to see and hear us sing to him. And, and the singing that is in, being enjoyed in heaven, we are enjoying it. We are joining in on it. We're an on-ramp unto the great choral songs of heaven. There's no cause for us to sing apathetically or, or, or a, in, in an angry sense or, or stand and, 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 uh, and, and, and expend no energy. Because, you know, as um, Peterson nicely puts it, singing is speech intensified and expanded. The result and essence of worship is singing. It's uncontained exuberance about God. Angels sing. All creation sings. It's what worshipers do. It's what we will do for all eternity. We need to get good at it. We need to express to God our thanksgiving for who he is and what he's done for us. And we do that with the exuberance of our singing voices. Lift it up high to heaven. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. When we're singing, we're worshiping can't help it. That's the result. And finally, do you hear the hearty amen? Verse 14. The four living creatures said, the representation of all of God's living creation says, amen. Now, you know, this is the one word that has not been translated down through the ages. Jesus opted not to translate it. 
Jesus said, Amen. Well, maybe not with a Canadian dialect. <laughs> maybe it was Amin. He could have translated it into Aramaic. Could have translated it into Greek. Could have translated it into Latin. Could have translated it into Swahili if he wanted to. But he didn't translate it because there is something about that word. In fact, in Isaiah 65, 16, the living God calls himself the Amen. Tend not to tamper with God's name. And Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3, and verse 14 says, these are the words of the Amen. Jesus is the Amen. Do you realize that? It's a shout and applause, Justin Martyr said in 150 AD. It's a hearty cheer to God's unchangeable yes to us in Christ. Jesus is the present and the future yes to the promises of God. He is the amen. When we hear truth about God, we shout amen because we are acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every promise of God. He is the yes to us of his promises in Jesus Christ. And amen packages all that. And it's just not, it's not possible to humanly tamper with that. You just, you just say it and you know what it is. Worship, a worship service. There's nothing like it. There's no other gathering like this gathering. There's nothing remotely close to this interface that we have in this gathering and the splendor of glory that someday we will gather together. And in fact, in truth, you and I who know Christ are in this gathering already. Don't ask me how to figure that out. It just boggles the mind. And it's all here at Calvary. Word, prayer, baptism, Lord's table, celebration, singing, rejoicing, story of redemption, revelation. It's all here. It's all here. The merging with all the people of God and the heavenly happening that this Sunday is all about. And we call it church. We are lifted from the mundane into the magnificent. Amen. 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 If we come in here semi-grounded through unbelief and sin and apathy and anger, the gathering of God's people and the presence of the living Christ is actually among us. And through faithfulness, as we are a part of the body of Christ, we join together in a holy celebration, gathering, here on earth and in heaven. It is worship, and it is spectacular. All creation in manifest or manifold witness. Heaven is brought into the present. Oh, beloved. 
never, ever think of church the same again. Our Father, I praise you. I thank you for your truth to us. I thank you for your glories. I thank you for putting up with what seems so meager, Lord. But we know you love us. And we know that you help us. And we know, Lord, that you join with us all of creation to lift up our worship to you. And we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ who has made this moment possible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Beloved, as we go from this place, I just want to mention to you that the the context for this teaching in Scripture is nestled between the Lord's concerns about the church and a time of tribulation and trial and distress and pain and suffering. I'm not sure what your week holds for you. Perhaps you already are anticipating some trials and some struggles and some pain, some challenges. I hope that you will retain the vision and glory and splendor of your Savior who sits on his throne in authority and power and strength and with grace and love, promising to never leave you or forsake you, to help you and to love you throughout this coming week because he's the glorious one. Amen. So, oh, Father, we lift up our hearts to you with great thanksgiving. We are grateful to have been in the assembly of the saints, not just now, but of all ages, lifting up voices in praise, lifting up hearts, having our head lifted up, reminded in this grand vision that you, O oh God, are ruler over all the universe and all creation witnesses to your glory. And so, Father, there is nothing too hard for you. And whatever we face, we face it with the strength and power and might and glory of the Lord who is for us and with us and loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.